Um, so today we're doing what we did last week and the week before. We are reading from Paul's happiest letter in kind of the darkest, dullest, unhappiest uh, month. And uh, he's giving uh, encouragement and guidance to uh, Christians in the uh, church in the city of Philippi. Um, apparently it was the first church that he established in Europe uh, and it was uh, in this uh, what's now sort of Greece uh, and uh, uh, he's sort of reaching out to them. Um, they've got various hardships uh, going on, uh, uh, various ways that would detract from the gospel, but this is a good church. It's healthy, it's vibrant, he doesn't seem to lay into them much at all. He is just full of praise and joy and uh, happiness. Uh, and uh, he's uh, really thankful for them. Uh, I love this, uh, just this investment Paul has in these different churches. And, and when he looks at the church at Philippi, he's just so invested in them. When they're doing really well, he gets thrilled and chuffed. And uh, his thankfulness bursts out onto the pages of his uh, epistle. And uh, last week, you may remember, we looked at a particular character. It's not someone that I've really uh, sort of examined before, uh, but this guy, Epaphroditus who uh, took this gift from the Philippines to support Paul in Rome and sort of almost died on the way and then worked really hard with him. Uh, and we find that uh, just Paul really celebrates this guy. He says he's a co-worker, he's a fellow soldier, uh, he's a brother in Christ. And uh, uh, partly because he almost died for his faith, there's that something there that Paul goes, you know, this is the real thing. This is true faith. This is someone that would die for Christ. And uh, I can get on board with that. And you Philippians, when he comes home, you can welcome him and celebrate him as a man that's done well. And uh, so we just sort of used his example to inspire our own walk with God. And uh, I kind of signed off the sermon last week with this just uh, lifting up the uh, idea of risky behaviour for God. There's all sorts of people that don't like risky behaviour. You know, it's dangerous, it's unnerving, things can go wrong. And while risk assessments have their place, in the kingdom of God, they're not valued as much as in bureaucracy and the civil service. Uh, and uh, uh, we should uh, sometimes be happy to risk things for Jesus. And there was that question of, when do we last do something risky for Jesus? When do we last risk our reputation? When do we last risk our money? Um, it's slightly less helpful to say, when did you last risk your help for Jesus in a pandemic? Uh, but the truth is still there. Um, and so if you thought Epaphroditus was pretty impressive, you know, someone that just seems a little bit above you in the scale of the saints, um, I want you to meet a, another man that Paul uh, applauds. Uh, and this isn't just a fellow soldier, isn't just a brother, isn't just a co-worker. This guy Paul calls son. And uh, before, we, before we look at uh, Paul's spiritual son, I want to establish in our minds the idea of father and son. Uh, perhaps get a, a clearer idea of what it means for someone to uh, say, of someone else's son. 
Hopefully everyone in the building and everyone at home is aware of the great Christian writer C.S. Lewis. We love to harp about, harp on about him here. He's just someone whose writing has delighted just so many of our congregation. Everything uh, from the Lion and the Witch and the Wardrobe to mere Christianity to the screw tape letters. Uh, the Weight of uh, Glory is a great uh, uh, little essay. Uh, I would uh, recommend his Cosmic Trilogy. It's not read much, but I really love uh, uh, some of the language that he uses in there. Anyway, so C.S. Lewis is this really great Christian thinker, someone that's left a, a real legacy, and uh, I often see him quoted uh, here and there in, in sort of uh, uh, sermons that I love. Uh, anyway, before C.S. Lewis came to faith, he was a steadfast atheist. He knew very clearly that God didn't exist, that Jesus was rubbish, and that Christians were bonkers, and he was very clear in that, and he was resolute in these firm held beliefs. Um, and he says that if you want to stay an atheist, you've got to be very careful with the books you read, and you've got to avoid particular books, because they're going to uh, unsettle you. And uh, there's this book called The Everlasting Man by G.K. Chesterton. Um, and this is the book that C.S. Lewis was starting to move from a position of doubt, scepticism and atheism to one where he loves Jesus, where he becomes this famous uh, uh, promoter of him and he just writes stuff that Christians have uh, delighted in uh, for years. And this book, The Everlasting Man, starts with this rather endearing phrase. There are two ways of getting home. One of them is to stay there. The other is to walk around the whole world till we get back to the same place. And uh, hopefully in that little sentence you can catch a, a glimpse of G.K. Chesterton's sort of desire for humour and uh, truth at the same time. He, to be, he, uh, um, he weaves together uh, these particular principles that he obviously uh, enjoys. And uh, the writings of G.K. Chesterton, uh, he wrote the, um, the Father Brown Mysteries and he wrote a lot of other uh, 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 books as well. I've got a few of them on my bookshelf and I definitely recommend uh, them too. And again, he's just full of truth and love and humour. Uh, uh, again and again, you really see that G.K. Chesterton, this guy who brought kind of C.S. Lewis to faith, loved truth, love and humour. I want to read to you something from his autobiography. So this is Chesterton talking about himself um, and his own background. The very first thing I can remember seeing with my own eyes was a young man walking across a bridge. He had a curly moustache and an attitude of confidence verging on swagger. He carried in his hand a disproportionately large key of a shining yellow metal and he wore a large golden crown. The bridge he was crossing sprang on one side of the edge of a mountain to the peaks of a uh, um, of a castle. In the castle tower there was one window out of which a young lady was looking. I cannot remember in the least what she looked like but I will do battle with anyone who denies her good looks. To those that may object 
that such a scene is rare in the home of Kensington High Street in Kensington High Street in the latter 70s of the last century, I'd be compelled to admit it. But I would say, not that the scene was unreal, but I saw it through a window more wonderful than the window in the tower. I saw it through a stage of a toy theatre my dad had made. And I admit, the young man in the crown was about six inches high and proved investigation to be made of cardboard. So we have G.K. Chesterton talking about his dad and his first memory is of this sort of homemade theatre his dad made for him. Um, his dad uh, seemed to have a finger in every pie. He sort of uh, wrote books, he was into astronomy, he loved art, uh, and he, he was like the epitome of the hobbyist. He had so many different interests uh, that G.K. Chesterton uh, uh, just keeps on listing different things that his dad got up to. And we find in his dad all sorts of things that G.K. Chesterton uh, exemplifies. And um, I just want to read uh, just something a little later in the, in the same uh, chapter. Number 999 in the vast library catalogue of books I have never written. All of them so much more brilliant and convincing than the books I have written. Is the story of a successful man who seemed to have a dark secret in his life and who was eventually discovered by the detectives still playing with dolls or tin soldiers or some undignified antic of infancy. I may say with all modesty that I am that man. In everything except his solidity of repute and his successful commercial career. It was perhaps even more true in that sense of my father before me, but I for one have never left off playing. And I wish there were more times to play. I wish we did not have to fritter away on frivolous things like lectures and literature. The time we might be given to serious, solid and constructive work, like cutting out cardboard figures and pasting coloured tinsel upon them. So we have in G.K. Chesterton's dad, just a guy that loved life, that, you know, it wasn't just all about work, it wasn't all about seriousness, it was about play, it was about imagination, it was uh, about using all the gifts that God had given him, and he gave him a vibrant faith and a vibrant home life. And, and we find that G.K. Chesterton's a really adoring uh, son, and we find that these attributes are passed on to... G.K. Chesterton, he too is like that. He loves to play. He loves to delight in life. He loves to be whimsical and humorous. He isn't too serious, you know, too dour, too boring. He is full of life and it just comes through uh, the pages of his literature. And where does he get this from? It just comes from living alongside his dad. He was a son. He couldn't help but be anything else. And he just took on all these attributes uh, uh, that his dad had. You know, we're, we're confronted with many different celebrities and heroes and writers that talk about how the situation uh, was the thing that forged their soul, that the circumstances uh, and their own mental 
uh, fortuity was the thing that made them the man or woman they are today. And G.K. Chesterton just holds up and goes, no, I'm just a lot like my dad. You know what, uh, it may not seem very noble and heroic, but he was amazing and I really enjoy being just like him. And we should just sense that, that uh, family connection. There's this rich dynamic of family that the children often look and sound and behave just like their parents just for living alongside them, just by catching their values. And it is that uh, point that Paul draws on when he talks about his own spiritual self. And uh, just for fullness, I uh, wanted to uh, uh, bring C.S. Lewis' famous quote on humility. It is, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but it's thinking of yourself less. You get to chew that over and sort of uh, work through it. Um, if you've got a Bible, turn to Philippians chapter 2. It says this in Philippians chapter 2, verse 19. I hope in the Lord, Je in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself. How has he proved himself? Because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope therefore to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come. So we find Paul sending back Epaphroditus. He's the one that brought the gift that almost got killed. Um, now he's sending him back and he's saying, Epaphroditus, go encourage them, uh, relieve them, tell them I'm doing all right, that their gift was warmly received uh, and, uh, you know, will be blessed by his return. However, Paul wanted to send his main man, his number uno, uno guy, Timothy. And uh, Timothy, he uh, would too encourage these Christians in Philippi. He too would build them up and celebrate them and just recognise God's grace amongst them. But more importantly, Timothy is being sent so that he can know what is really going on. So he can really suss out how the church in Philippi is doing. I don't know if you've ever met a pastor or a church member who you ask how church is going, you go, oh, we're in the joy of the Lord, the Spirit's moving, we're getting loads of disciples, and then you go to the church uh, in person and you don't recognise the description at all because it seems vastly different. We Christians, uh, we don't like it when our own church isn't doing really well or uh, isn't measuring up to the measures that we think it should do. And, and we're often, uh, and pastors are worse than ever, than all of you put together, uh, sort of inflating tiny little bits of good because the rest of it's gone to pot. And Paul wants to know what the Church of Philippi is really doing. So he sends Timothy because he has got some particular attributes. Um, and he says, do you know why Timothy is so qualified to see how you're doing? He is 
humble. I wonder if that is the attribute uh, and way of measuring church that you have in your mind. As you look around this fellowship or another fellowship, I wonder if humility is the best quality to use to judge it. Why was humility so important to Paul? Well, I could just say, because Jesus was humble and we could all move on, but that would mean that we don't get to read that little hymn in Philippians, which I seem to uh, love, and we're going to read a slight bit of it, just for no other reason than it is a really good thing to be reminded of. Um, and it says this in Philippians 2. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Just drink this in. Allow this to do your soul good. Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. He made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Uh, Paul just cannot make the point large enough that Christ was humble. That, that was his motivation for coming down to earth. That was the way in which he handled being put into mortal form. When you are God Almighty beyond time and space and brought the uh, uh, spinning orbs and you put them in uh, the galaxies, when you uh, uh, created the universe we see being put in mortal form is quite a humiliating and humbling experience. But Jesus embraced that for our sake. Jesus not only took on mortal form, but he took on mortal form and allowed his body to be lacerated and uh, tortured and executed. Not because he deserved it, but out of love for you and I. And the Apostle Paul goes, that is the pattern for life. That is how Christians behave. We are no longer to, to grasp on to what we think we deserve and our rights, but we are to give out constantly as much as we can. And Timothy lived alongside Paul, and Paul, uh, as the years went on, just looked back, leaned back in his chair and looked at his spiritual son and said, you look a lot like me. You are humble. You are uh, uh, one who wants to serve other people. You don't constantly chew over your own identity, but you just give out again and again to bless those around you. Um, and I just see Jesus in you, Timothy. And humble Timothy is the one that is able to make the best spiritual assessment of the church in Philippi. He's the one that Paul sends out to find out what the church is really like. Timothy the humble, he wouldn't be swayed by large numbers, 
wouldn't be swayed by an impressive appearance, wouldn't be persuaded by a massive budget, a big building, wouldn't be persuaded uh, by uh, all the pomp and ceremony that we love to pretend uh, magnifies God. Paul knew that Timothy knew that humility was where it at. And if Timothy finds humility in the Philippine church, then the church is doing well. But if Timothy doesn't find humility, then there is a problem. And it doesn't matter how many internet service they give, how awesome their graphics are, Timothy will see right through and go, well, where's Jesus? Where's this Jesus that died for your sins? Where's this Jesus that gave up everything uh, uh, to die for you and I? I wonder if Timothy, if Timothy was sent to our fellowship, what would this expert in humility conclude? What would he look and see in our interactions? Would he find a group of really humble people that know what it is to serve and be generous and to think less of themselves and more of other people? Or would he find hollow shells? You know, we're good at making a noise and putting on our church face and giving money and this, that and the other, but the Holy Spirit has not brought forth humility in our lives at all. Forget all the modern day measures we think reveal the healthiness of a fellowship. Forget all the things that you've been told in books and in sermons as to the healthiness of a church. Paul says that the healthiness of church is measured by the humility of the people that make it up. That is how our church health is measured according to Paul. If we want a healthy church, it's not about numbers, it's not about money, it's not about a successful multimedia empire, it is about humility. It is about a group of people that know what it is to be sinners, that know what it is to serve other people, to think of them more than themselves. And you know it starts, just to be clear, by knowing that God loves us and accepts us and uh, has a place in heaven for us. It's not that we are worms worthy of nothing. It, we start from a place of perfect security. Jesus knew he was the Son of God. And out of that place of strength, he could serve anyone because no one could shake that. And when we come to church, we need to be in a place where we are assured of God's love and affection for us. That our sins were washed, and it just seems a very appropriate song to sing, washed as white as snow and you can still see it out there coming down and uh, it's just really good uh, just we are washed white as snow and loved by God and in that place of identity in that place of security we can serve you know we can wash floors we can scrub the uh, uh, urn clean we can serve teas and coffees we can go you know what I don't need to be up the front I just want to serve in any way I can. 
You know, if it has to be invisibly during the week, I will do so without any acclaim because God loves me and I don't have to grasp my identity and just serve because God loves me so. So, how's that going for you? How's that serving? How's that humility going? How is that true measure of our church winning? What's your prayer life like? If you did a pie chart of who you prayed for, I wonder which segment would be the biggest. Is it you? Oh Lord, give me this and that. Would it be your family? Oh Lord, make my children successful. Lord, remove Boris Johnson and make a way for uh, my eldest to take his place. Or uh, is it, God, just remember those people that are struggling. God, Auntie Edna, who sits at the back. Lord God, touch her, help her. I can't help her physically, but by golly, I can pray for her. And so I wonder what your prayer life is like. Over the year, I've, uh, I haven't been able to get out as much as I'd like and reach out and help people, but I've been really encouraged by these stories I've heard of parts of our congregation helping the other. And it's interesting, it's not always the well-off, the most best-positioned people that help another person. It is not always the most well-equipped, but it is the people with humility in their heart that, that reach out and go, you know, I haven't got much. My five loaves and a couple of fishes, that's it. But I present it to you out of service, out of devotion out of recognition that you are worth my time. Even in lockdown, we can serve one another. And God bless you guys that have been trying. You've used text message and phone calls and WhatsApp and messages and emails and video chat and sent out gifts to people. Uh, and it's been uh, uh, really great to see the ingenious ways that we've tried to be socially distanced and pandemic aware, uh, but still express humility by saying, you know what, you are worth more of the time than me serving myself. So many people have put aside their own issues during lockdown and looked devotedly to the person beside them. That it's been really encouraging. And I suspect when this lockdown happens, there'll be essentially two classes of people. There'll be the humble ones that have served and that have grown in humility and grown with humility alongside others and have increased in their ability to think of themselves less than more of other people despite their home situations. And there are those people that have been adrift. And I know there are people who set adrift. They have not worked to think of themselves less. They have become more preoccupied with themselves in lockdown. They have become more self-obsessed. And you hear from them less and less. And if lockdown ever ends, they will be more adrift rather than tighter in. And humility is the challenge of that. Are we going to come back to lockdown and we're going to see the faces of the people that have just been selfless again and again? Or are we going to see strange faces of people we've not heard from for a year? 
who have been strangers. And it almost seems we have to work to get uh, to know them all over again. So the, the, the last thing I want to draw our attention to uh, with Timothy is his track record. The guy isn't just some new sensation, you know, he's got a square jawline, he's got a sugared tongue, he's got uh, the, uh, the physique of someone off a reality TV programme and he waltzes in and everyone goes, make him in charge, put him uh, in leadership. Poor Timothy is intimately familiar with what it really takes to be a disciple of Jesus. He knows what it means to follow Jesus through thick and thin. Listen to uh, the second letter uh, Paul wrote his spiritual son, Timothy. You see a spider crawl out of my Bible, I'm not sure how it's got in there. Um, God bless the wildlife. Um, 2 Timothy uh, uh, chapter 3, verse 10. You, however, know all about my teaching, Timothy, my way of life, my purpose, my faith, my patience, my love, my endurance, my persecutions, my sufferings. What kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium and Lystra? The persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from them all. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's a great sentence. Have you heard that one? Have you got that on your fridge? Have you got that as a screensaver? Have you posted that on social media? Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Hallelujah. While evildoers and imposters will go from bad to worse. Fascinating. Deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned, Timothy, and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you've learned it. And how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Uh, it seems that uh, Timothy, I think, had a, a Greek dad. We don't hear much about him, but we hear quite a bit about his mum and his grandmother. They loved Jesus and they taught this young one all about him. Um, they told him about this saviour and he just drank it in by all accounts. He learnt scriptures so he had this head knowledge he knew about action as he saw his mum and grandmother uh, serve the church and uh, he had his heart changed and that's just obvious again and again when Paul looks at him and goes you know uh, I recognise in you a spiritual son you just embody all these qualities that I cherish on top of his excellent homeschooling on top of this uh, unparalleled homeschooling, Timothy lives alongside Paul, the Apostle Paul. And uh, it looks like he might have encountered the Apostle Paul 
When, when Paul was speaking to thousands of people and millions were being saved, no, it looks like he probably encountered Paul uh, on Paul's first trip to his hometown. Do you know what happened to Paul on his first home trip, uh, on his first trip to Timothy's hometown? He got stoned. What an interesting mentor to choose. The first thing you see about him is being stoned and left for dead. I wonder if that's someone that you would choose to be your mentor. I think Timothy recognised uh, in Paul the words and teachings of his mum and his grandmother. He knew faith wasn't to be dabbled in. You don't add it on to an already comfortable life. Jesus asks everything. There's nothing in your life that Jesus doesn't say, are you going to give that to me? Am I going to be owning that? Or is that a compartment in your life that is a Jesus-free zone? Because that just doesn't uh, cut the mustard. Timothy knew all about scripture, and uh, Paul rams that home too. Uh, and he knew that uh, perverted men would distort it. As we hear today, Christ, uh, uh, Christians distorting scripture for their own nefarious purposes, for their own purposes of telling you what you want to hear. And Timothy knew that uh, Christianity wasn't a quick sprint. You know, oh, we'll just get a week of praying and fasting in and then I can live like I want to. No, Timothy knew that it was a long, hard road. It was a narrow path, but it would be worth it. This is a great um, passage from John 13. I'm always worried that people at home can't see it. It says, uh, by this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you love, have love for one another. Being a capable, of being a capable disciple of Jesus isn't uh, achieved overnight. It isn't even a gift of the Spirit. It's not simply adding church attendance to your life or switching on the computer at 10.30 so that you can just loll up in front of someone talking. It isn't just about budgeting. Praise the Lord if you get 10% of your income to Jesus. But that isn't what it takes either. It's not about swearing less or just drinking less or watching less naughty stuff on the TV. It takes a lifetime. It takes a lifetime of practice, of watching mature believers, of listening to sermons, even the ones that you don't perhaps find exciting, even the ones that don't sort of rev you up and you mean you can't wait to talk to someone about Jesus the next morning. It takes all sorts of sermons to fully build up the picture of the kingdom of God in our hearts. It takes a lifetime of doing Practicing, You know what? You don't just force upon the poor and the needy the actions that you decide they need. You're sensitive to them and listen to them. And it takes a lifetime of watching and copying and praying. It's not a sprint. It's a marathon. And the training is very different. And all of us, hopefully, are taking part in this process of discipleship. You know, the Holy Spirit reveals imperfections. You think, ah, oh, I've got that imperfection ticked off. You know, I'm no longer an habitual gambler. And then the Holy Spirit goes, well, you've got that done, man. Do you see this? 
And it's a never-ending process of refinement because our goal is not just to be a slightly better person than we were last week, but it is to be like Jesus, to um, approach perfection. And that process never ends in this lifetime. This is why new Christians don't get to be leaders. This is why you don't put new Christians up the front. Because uh, uh, they are liable to uh, uh, make mistakes very quickly and, and uh, misunderstand stuff. And that's why uh, leadership and eldership is prever- uh, preserved for uh, veterans. People have known Jesus for quite a long time. That have seen fads come and go. That know what it is to listen to the Spirit. That have uh, run the race well for some time and you can trust them with other people and this is why it's healthy to stick with one congregation through thick and thin if you can sometimes obviously things kick off that uh you know what yeah uh, it's time to move on but generally speaking we should be sticking to one congregation because that is the way that we become accountable and intimate with one another where people can hold you up and say do you realize this behavior and that you can take it and suck it up and change where you and your modeling of christ can be adopted by the novice by the new believer by the person that doesn't uh, hasn't known jesus for very long There is something profound and worthwhile about living alongside other veterans and novices in the faith. There's something precious about it. I think sometimes we think church can be a performance. It's the Sunday morning service. When it's a congregation, sometimes scattered, sometimes gathered, seven days a week. And our faith in this context should be purified should be made better, should be more like Jesus, where other people prod in us the deficiencies that we didn't know we had. And you know, as we live like this, we don't just touch each other, we don't just make each other better, but the world hears. And that's what Jesus is saying. The world hears when Christians are like this. Um, There are so many bits from uh, Timothy Keller's Centre Church, that would be appropriate to read now. I could probably read for another hour and a half of great things of wisdom that I wish I could put into words. Um, but I'm not going to. Um, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll come to the end. We'll, uh, uh, we'll skip the first bit. If, you, if you're looking for a book to read, Centre Church by Timothy Keller's a great book. And I'll just read a, uh, uh, the end bit. Exceptional character in individuals cannot prove the reality of Christianity. Atheism, as well as many other religions, can also produce individual heroes of unusual moral greatness. Though such individuals may inspire us, it is all too easy to conclude that these individuals are just that, extraordinary heroes who have set unattainable standards to the rest of us. What atheism and other religions cannot produce is the kind of loving community that the gospel produces. In fact, Jesus states that our deep unity is the way the world will know that the church sent him and has loved us even as the Father has loved him. 
Jesus says that the main way people will believe that Christians have found the love of God is by seeing the quality of their life together in community. So the question Timothy poses to us, what's our community life like? How involved are we? How humble are we becoming? How more like Jesus are we prospering? Please bear heads. Heavenly Father, I thank you uh, for the capacity to talk to people in people in person and at home. Lord God, we thank you for everyone that has joined in. And we just ask for our community here in Peebridge, Holy Spirit, that you would help us be a fellowship that Timothy could come to and uh, recognise true humility in. Lord God, I pray that we would be good at uh, thinking of ourselves less and others more, that we would be good at recognising the worth in other believers, that we would be good at serving. And Lord God, I pray also that we would take that cue from Timothy, that we would be in it for the long run. There is not just this week of being holy or this year, but that we are in it for a lifetime and that we want to be refined over all our years so that at 80 we are far, far nearer and more recognisable like Christ than we were ever at 18. Holy Spirit, we just welcome you in and ask for you to take these jars of clay and fill them with yourselves. And uh, Lord God, I pray for us as we go into another week that you would sanctify us for your purposes, that we would know your leading, that we would demonstrate love, that the world would look upon even this little fellowship and find in it proof that there is a God, that he sent his son Jesus, and that Jesus uh, is the way, the truth, and the life. Lord God, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.